it's time to join Montana's very own and your voice for agriculture, Talkin' Ag Lane Nordland for today's LaneCast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to more conversations here on the LaneCast Ag Podcast in partnership with the Western Ag Network. And for many months, since October 2022, farmers, ranchers, landowners, builders, and so many different stakeholders have been awaiting the Supreme Court's decision after they heard those oral arguments last fall in the Sackett versus EPA case. And finally, on the morning of May 25th, the high court ruled that the Environmental Protection Agency cannot get away with what it wants to do, essentially. And of course, this has been quite a case that has been followed for several years. The Sackett family hailing from Idaho, but I'm just a farm broadcaster. I'm not a legal scholar, but joining us here today uh, from Washington, D.C., is the National Cattlemen's Beef Association's Chief Counsel, Mary Thomas Hart. And uh, Mary Thomas, obviously, the, the high court ruled in favor of the Sacketts, reversing that uh, Ninth Circuit Appeals Court decision. Uh, obviously, we'll go through the history of what the Sackett versus EPA case is, what it means going forward. But uh, what, what does this mean to the cattlemen and women that have played a big role in the legal proceedings and having a voice in this, what many call overreach by the federal government? Well, firstly, and thank you so much for having me. And, you know, for a farm broadcaster, I think you're making a pretty good legal expert. You've given a pretty good summary and, and definitely asking the right questions. I think today, Farmers, ranchers, cattle producers, landowners across the country um, are experiencing a massive exhale. At least that's how I feel in my office. Um, you know, this is an issue that we've we've been working on pretty directly since 2015. Um, whether it was through the administrative regulatory process, through litigation, um, but I know for many producers across the country, they've dealt with different iterations of a WOTUS definition since the Clean Water Act was passed into law in 1972. So, you know, this is a huge moment in creating as much clarity as possible for landowners across the country. Um, and I think, you know, the the death of the significant nexus test is is not something um, that we're taking lightly. We are we are certainly happy to see it go away. Now, obviously, this was a nine to zero ruling. So all the justices agreed that uh, obviously the scope of the waters of the U.S. under the Clean Water Act was outside of its true scope. And I, I guess when we go through these uh, opinions, there's actually differing opinions from the uh, the justices. What does that look like? Obviously, there is over 80 pages in this opinion, and I know you finally had time to go through these uh, as well. But when we go through the 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 opinions, what what should our audience know? What came out of the decision today? So a couple takeaways, and I think you know, high level. First of all, we got two. I would say two unanimous holdings from this court. One, applied to the facts of the case, the Sacketts are not liable under the Clean Water Act. Their wetlands are not federally jurisdictional, and every justice on the bench agreed to that. The second thing that was unanimously agreed upon is that the significant nexus test is not the standard that EPA and the Army Corps of Engineers should use in determining if a feature is jurisdictional under the Clean Water Act two massive holdings, both of which were 9-0 votes. 
Now, when we get into, you know, what to use instead of significant nexus, that's where we see some differentiation. Um, I think it's important to highlight, you know, the, the last time we kind of got into this mess over what tests to use um, that really got us to where we are today was in the U.S. Supreme Court's Rapanos case. And that was a 4-1-4 decision where we had four justices um, recommending a continuous surface connection test one justice recommending the significant nexus test, and then four justices saying, we don't really like either of these, but significant nexus is the lesser of the two evils. And that's how we got into this. I would, I think like 15, nearly, you know, 20 year kind of back and forth over which standard to use. The court, you know, even though it was divided in which test to use in, in determining jurisdiction under the Clean Water Act, I think was incredibly mindful of that. So the majority, five of the justices, recommended the continuous surface next the continuous surface connection test as the new standard for defining which features are federally jurisdictional the four justices in the minority said, we don't love the continuous surface connection test, but we also don't like the significant nexus test. So they didn't provide an alternative test. So continuous surface connection is going to be the law of the land. That's going to be the standard that the EPA and Army, of, Army Corps of Engineers are, are tied to for future definitions of waters of the U.S. Now, Mary Thomas, Obviously, when we when we talk about that connection point, there's been a lot of concern from farmers, ranchers, landowners over the years about, again, what is navigable. So, sometimes we do have water that is coming through uh, an area during during a, a rainy season or, or we have a really good snowpack. Obviously, is that still up in the air on a time length of what is navigable and, and how that connect connects? Or is that something that legal minds are going to be arguing going forward since they truly didn't make a, a, a full decision on that aspect of it? Right. So continuous surface connection, I think, is a pretty narrow standard, right? And EPA is certainly going to be tasked with defining what is a continuous surface connection. Um, but continuous doesn't give you a lot of wiggle room. Um, you know, when NCBA looks at any definition, we're really looking for three things. And I think two of those were pretty clearly addressed in today's opinion. Um, the first is the, the regulation of isolated features, isolated wetlands, um, isolated, you know, whether you're talking about uh, prairie potholes, vernal pools, ply lakes, those features that are not on their own connected to a downstream navigable water. I think that based on today's opinion, those features are clearly not going to be subject to federal jurisdiction in the future. Now, the other feature that we are, you know, always mindful of are those ephemeral features or, fe or features that really only carry water after a precipitation event. And that's where the word continuous is going to come into play because there are three different types of, you know, streams or, or categories of flow. So, perennial, year-round, all the time, those features are generally subject to jurisdiction and people don't really argue over whether those features should be managed by EPA. Seasonal features or intermittent features, I think is going to be the gray area. And that's where there's going to be a lot of conversation about, you know, if something flows for 
a few months a year um, for one season out of the year, is that enough to consider it continuous? That's that's a question that we'll have to answer in the future. But I think when it comes to those ephemeral features that really only carry water after sporadic precipitation events, um, it's going to be a pretty clear no um, from the Supreme Court on federal jurisdiction of those features. So, you know, maybe still a couple questions to answer, but I think, you know, someone said earlier today that we've moved the scrimmage line. And I think that's a really good analogy. Um, it certainly changes our starting point in a future conversation with EPA about which features are in and which features are out. Now, maybe backtracking just a bit here, as I mentioned earlier, the, the Sackets themselves uh, were trying to build a house. Mm -hmm. And again, farmers, ranchers also, uh, got in on this lit litigation too to support them in their legal efforts can you just share a little bit on the history of the sackets and their legal endeavors that have taken them all the way to the u.s supreme court this isn't something that has just popped up in the last one or two years this has been a multi-year legal battle uh, for property rights Absolutely. It has been a, a multi-year back and forth, and this is also the Sackett's second trip to the Supreme Court concerning this one plot of land. So quite a while back, the Sacketts bought a piece of lakeside property to build their dream home, as you know, we all aspire to do one day. Um, and the, the plot in question is near an already developed area. So, you know, they, they purchased the land, um, started to do some, some prep work, and then were approached by the Army Corps of Engineers and EPA saying that they needed to obtain a Clean Water Act permit before dredging and filling wetlands that were on that property. So their question to the Supreme Court that they've, you know, gone to the Supreme Court related to kind of other more, um, more practical matters in the permitting process, but then had the opportunity to take this question to the Supreme Court of whether their wetlands specifically on their property were jurisdictional waters of the U.S. And because there's not a continuous surface connection from their property to Priest Lake, which is what the court considers a, tradi a traditional navigable water, um, then their land is not subject to federal permitting requirements. Um, but you're absolutely right, uh, Lane, that there has been quite a bit of litigation over this one piece of land and a lot of time spent um, for the Sacketts to hopefully now be able to build a house on the land that they purchased. They'll probably be having one heck of a barbecue get together once that uh, house is built next to the lake uh, with, with this decision. Yeah. Uh, but as we go forward, though, obviously, Mary Thomas, we've seen so many uh, presidential uh, items on waters of the U.S. We saw the 2015 WOTUS rule put forward by the Obama administration. Then we saw the repeal of that by the Trump administration and the replacement of the rule with the navigable waters protection rule. And then the Biden administration comes in, repeals the Trump rule and puts forward their own WOTUS rule. Now that was done pretty quietly at the end of last year. How does this impact the Biden Lotus rule going forward. I know that's a lot of questions we've been seeing online and on Twitter uh, just in the few hours since the uh, opinion from the high court came down. What, what is the next steps? And, and uh, 
again, a lot of people thought that uh, the Biden rule was a little too hasty. A lot of people, including the NCBA, asked that that rule not be put forward until the, the high court ruled. But uh, I guess that's the question. What does the Biden rule look like now? Those are those are some great questions and questions that the court addressed um, in their opinion today. So, you know, while for the last eight years we've been fighting over regulatory definitions of WOTUS, the Supreme Court's kind of been in the background, right? They haven't had a WOTUS case in quite a few years, but they were clearly watching what was happening. And I think they were clearly very concerned about the administrative kind of flip-flopping and whiplash that we saw um, from EPA in the last few years. And so I do think that one of the purposes of today's opinion and the, the very clear holding was to kind of reinforce the EPA, look, regardless of what our standard is, we don't have time and, and regulated stakeholders don't have time for the regulatory whiplash that's being created by these you know, various definitions of WOTUS. Um, so when it comes to the Biden rule that is currently in effect in 24 states, um, you know, I, I think at a minimum, the Biden administration is going to be required to pull that rule back and do some very significant revisions. The significant nexus test is the cornerstone of this rule that was finalized a couple months ago. Um, and so with the significant nexus test gone, that kind of pulls the, the underpinning of everything in that definition. Um, we will likely um, work in, in the federal district court system um, to ask for a vacater of that rule. In the meantime, um, NCBA is currently involved in litigation fighting the Biden rule, so would be able to, you know, uh, work through that process in fairly short order. Um, but that's more, I think, of a, of a procedural matter, right? So in practice right now, if you're operating or if you're considering the need for a 404 permit, um, while that rule is still theoretically in effect in 24 states, I doubt we'll see EPA or the Army Corps of Engineers utilizing the significant nexus test in those jurisdictional determinations going forward from today, um, just because They've gotten that ruling from the Supreme Court and they know that anything they, you know, anything they do when they're following the significant nexus test now is going to be um, pretty vulnerable. And I know this week, obviously, uh, the injunctions came from uh, two different lawsuits or were granted in, in, in different states. Obviously, Texas and Idaho grouped together and then a court in North Dakota, which uh, granted an injunction on the Biden rule. But I saw earlier this week that uh, the EPA filed a, a request in one of the court. Uh, is it the fifth district down in New Orleans to vacate that decision for Texas and Idaho? Obviously, that probably won't get vacated or. Or will they just uh, will the will that uh, lower court just throw that request out the window? EPA has been uh, been fighting, I would say, harder in this case than they have in the past. Right? They they have been more aggressive in this series of litigation on the Biden rule than they were in either the Trump or Obama litigation, which was quite surprising to us. And and I think you know to an earlier point you made, um, we were really surprised that they chose to finalize this rule before the Supreme Court issued its opinion. You know, one of the one of our primary arguments against finalizing a rule early is that you're using limited resources to finalize a rule that's likely going to have to, you know, get some revisions. And EPA didn't listen. Um, and so I think they are they are putting a lot of time and resources into defending a rule that now, you know, the, the Supreme Court has ruled is clearly 
not not the law of the land it is gonna have to be pulled back um so yeah i i foresee um that action at, from epa um kind of winding back because they really do have to to take things back um to the office and kind of figure out if they can rewrite this rule in a way that works or if they're gonna have to start with a clean slate now also as we mentioned the sackets have been following this legal path for for several several years and uh, it's a costly affair uh, to do. And of course, agriculture groups, building groups uh, have jumped on to help in this legal quest as well. How, could you maybe just paint a picture for our, our viewers and our listeners on how uh, li livestock and agriculture groups like NCBA uh, can come in and, and help in these legal efforts and uh, really, really help get a decision that is favorable for landowners, farmers, and ranchers. Uh, again, this was not done overnight. It wasn't done with just one party, but uh, the, the decision by that one family to, to continue to go up against federal regulations, they could have thrown in the towel early, but they didn't. Can you just share how that works and how different parties uh, can be involved in a case like this? Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. You know, and I think from NCBA's perspective, perspective, this is an issue that we've been working on for years, utilizing all three branches of government to do it. And I think, you know, that's that's an important, you know, kind of unique piece that we're able to bring to the table, right? We lobby Congress, we work with EPA, but then when necessary, we also go to court. And so that's what we've done with, with the previous three regulatory definitions. But when there are these private causes of action, when there is a, a family out there or an operation that wants to you know, push back on EPA, um, we certainly provide the assist, um, especially when we get up to the Supreme Court. And I want to give the, the Pacific Legal Foundation um, credit here. They, you know, have represented the Sackets from the beginning. Um, so, you know, I think, you know, their work and expertise has been incredibly valuable to the Sackett family. Um, but when we get up to the Supreme Court, a lot of people step in to make sure that those arguments made by the Sackets are as robust as possible, um, whether it's from ag groups or building groups or other industry, um, other landowning entities. We want to make sure that those justices see just how broad the impact of something like the significant nexus test can be, right? It's not just this one family. It's not just this one wetland. It is across the country um, impacting small businesses, family operations, um, farmers and ranchers. So we, you know, I think work together really well. Um, with other groups and other industries, and then obviously, you know, parties in litigation to make sure that we are conveying the the, the breadth of the issue um, to whoever is on the court. Um, in in other areas, Mary Thomas, uh, that are very important for cattlemen and women. Uh, what what else is on your desk here as of late that uh, folks should be aware of, and that maybe is stuff taking place behind the scenes before maybe it even gets out there uh, trying to prevent anything from impacting the nation's livestock industry. Can you just share on, on some of the other matters that NCBA legally has been working on or continues to work on or, or other achievements we've seen over the past uh, few months? 
there, there's always plenty to talk about. And I'm just, you know, kind of, I, I'm really focused on our environmental issues. Um, so I'll maybe just provide some highlights there, but always know that, you know, whatever I'm working on or talking about, compound it by quite a few. And that is, you know, what all we're working on in this office and what all we're fighting back on. Um, so just in my space, you know, I think, you know, hopefully this decision goes a long way in settling the WOTUS argument and, and putting that to bed. Um, I think the next question is going to be related to the regulation of groundwater under the Clean Water Act. Um, there was actually an opinion from the Supreme Court a couple of years ago um, that kind of leans into there being a bit more jurisdiction um, over groundwater under the Clean Water Act. And, and EPA really has yet to, um, to tease that out. So as they go through that process, we'll be very engaged, um, especially on behalf of our small and medium animal feeding operations that may or may not need Clean Water Act permits at the moment. Um, also, you know, always engaged on the climate front to make sure that livestock production, including all segments of U.S. cattle production, are considered a climate smart practice and that we have access to USDA climate smart agriculture programs that we continue to have access to low interest credit um, and, you know, other, you know, considerations related to the, the climate impact of our industry um, and really highlighting the, the value of U.S. cattle production, especially compared to other beef supply chains around the world. Um, you know, one other thing that I would highlight is in the in the species space. So um, this is litigation related. We have we've litigated on NEPA, the ESA, the Trump ESA rules, and we're currently in litigation against the Fish and Wildlife Service on the listing of the lesser prairie chicken. Um, in, in the middle of the country. So um, always active, like I said earlier, across all three branches of government, making sure that we are, you know, in every space to defend and advance our policy priorities. Again, Mary Thomas Hart, Chief Legal Counsel there at the NCBA Washington, D.C. office. Uh, we got through a lot there in just under 20 minutes, uh, Mary Thomas. Hey, anything else that you would just like to share with our listeners and viewers here today before I let you get back to that busy day out in D.C. and talking to other farm broadcasters and reporters out there on this uh, very important uh, topic for rural America? I think I'd highlight that, you know, we got a we got a really big opinion today. There's a lot in there. We're still reading through it um, and to to stay informed as we're kind of working through the process, whether it be at EPA or in the court system, um, you can go to policy.ncba.org. Oh, policy.ncba.org um, to follow this issue and, and all of the issues that we're working on. Well, again, thank you so much. And uh, as we said before, Sackett versus EPA, the U.S. Supreme Court has ruled in favor of that Idaho family. And that decision is going to have a, a big impact on farmers, ranchers, landowners, and so many others out in the countryside from government regulation. Again, Mary Thomas Hart, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Lane. All right, friends, that will do it for today with this important news update. I'm Lane Nordlund. We'll catch you next time. Thank you for tuning in to the LaneCast with Talkin' Ag, Lane Nordland. For more on Lane, check out his Facebook page, Lane Nordland Ag Broadcaster and NordlandCommunications.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the LaneCast on your Apple or Android devices. We look forward to joining you next time on the LaneCast.